All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck sticks? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckabillies? How are you? Hello, it is I, Mark Marin. I host this show. Relax, take it easy, take a breath. Uh, send to yourself if you're driving uh, keep your eyes on the road stop texting if you're on the treadmill uh could you uh d- just pay attention don't slip on the treadmill that is an embarrassing moment especially if you if you don't hurt yourself that's embarrassing if you do hurt yourself it's really fucking embarrassing don't just slip on the treadmill uh all right okay get hold of yourself Marin. what's going on all right here's what's going on today we have alan bursky on the show i will explain that later in a minute, and it needs to be explained. Let me give you some updates. Can can I give you some updates about what's going on? I will be at the Trippany House at the Steve Allen Theater tomorrow, Tuesday, April 22nd, and Tuesday, April 29th. These are the last two. I added them. They are benefits for the theater. Come and see me if you'd like. I've got some stuff. It's, It's taking shape. This Friday night at midnight, I will be at Moon Tower Comedy Festival at the Paramount Theater in Austin, Texas. Uh, I will be in, uh, Austin. Yeah. Friday and Saturday. I don't think I'm doing anything Saturday. I'll probably be eating meat. Do I want to talk about Jesus real quick? I, yeah, I was just in Raleigh at Good Nights for over uh, over the the Jesus weekend, a Good Friday, and and uh, the day after Good Friday. I, I don't I don't know what day that is. The Saturday after is there a, day, a name for that day? And and I had great shows. I really enjoy Raleigh. I enjoy the people down there. A lot of people came out to see me. I was surprised. I didn't even realize it was uh, Jesus weekend, and and still great crowds. But I did feel the necessity uh, to do some research on Jesus because I don't really know the story. I didn't have Jesus. Jesus has never been in my heart. He's never been in my mind. I uh, I, I never had to use Jesus for anything. I, I just uh, Jesus was not part of my life because I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew, but I, I was aware of Jesus. I'd seen paintings of him. I'd seen pictures of him. I had an idea of what he looked like or what was presented to me as the Jesus. But whatever the case, I don't think I really... And I saw the Passion of the Christ. I don't think I really knew uh, the story of uh, Good Friday. And and I just decided to read it and spend the day thinking about Jesus. I probably spent more time thinking about Jesus on Good Friday than most Christians. And I was in the South, and it had resonance for me. And I, I, I learned... Uh, I imagine most Christians know this story, and I'm not even sure I know it. I'm not, and obviously, it might not be the real story. This is the story that was passed down to us by the people that that wrote the Bible. You know, those fellas, the 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 people that said, you know, let's lay out this mythology so people can hang their hopes on this idea of this guy, of this Jew. As a comic, I I was able to relate to Jesus a little bit. Now, obviously, I'm not comparing myself to Jesus in any real sense. He, you know, I'm not. Uh, worthy of that to compare myself even to the idea of Jesus. I, uh, you know, I, I'm not really willing to die for anyone's sins. I, 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 I've trashed a couple of relationships and, and part of my career to help people out, not even specifically to do that, but that's the way it went. And I think that people you know, might find some solace in the fact that, you know, I, I have fucked up a good deal and, uh, and I, and I persist. And I think there's that's uplifting for some people. Again, not comparing myself to Jesus, though we are both Jewish, but still not comparing myself to Jesus, though I do have a little beard going. I am not comparing myself to Jesus, though my hair is growing out. And I am not comparing myself to Jesus. I am on a cross right now. <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry, I got I got away with myself. I'm sorry. Listen. So for, here's how I can relate to Jesus, though, uh, is that because I didn't realize I didn't really realize what happened. And again, I'm just going by the biblical story, not not by the the truth. And I, and I don't know that. And I don't want to offend anybody. I do not want to offend anybody with this. Best I can understand it. Jesus was in a little bit of trouble. 
That that wasn't clear to me from what I read. But he's in trouble. He's he's a troublemaker of some kind. Well, a quiet troublemaker uh, in, in this particular instance because he wasn't talking much. I guess when Pilot uh, was judging him, and Pilot said, "All right, this guy's a troublemaker, but I don't think we have to kill him. You know, I don't want to deal with it. Send him to the Jews." So they sent him over to the Jewish judges. Uh, Herod and his people, I think, is who it was, if I remember Jesus Christ Superstar correctly. And uh, Herod was like, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, he's you know, he's a problem, but I don't have to kill him. And then uh, they send him back over to Pilate. And at this point, Pilate's got a, an unruly crowd. Uh, they, they, they're demanding entertainment. And, uh, and he's like, well, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Uh, let's let the crowd decide. And they, they're like, uh, you know, kill Jesus. And I'm paraphrasing. But what this means to me is that, you know, if you just break it down, Jesus was was killed by a shitty crowd. And as a comic, believe me, I know what that feels like. I, I, I do relate to that. A shitty crowd can ruin your day. And apparently a shitty crowd can give us the largest religion on the planet. A shitty crowd. Okay, that's all I'm saying. And by the way, Good Friday was not, it was probably the worst day Jesus ever had. I don't know who changed the name up or maybe they couldn't think of something better. But, uh, and again, I'm not condescending. But, uh, all right. Uh, We lost a comic uh, last week. And I don't know how many of you know who Otto and George were. Uh, Otto and George are a, uh, were a ventriloquist act. I have to assume George is not moving on. Um, but And I, I'm only being funny because he was funny. But uh, Otto Peterson and, and his uh, dummy George were hilarious. They, uh, they, they were a very unique act. They were a crass act. They were filthy. They pushed the envelope of, uh, of certainly... What, what a ventriloquist act really is, and, and, and also comedy. I think they were a great inspiration to some people, certainly the, the more filthy among us uh, comedians. And, uh, you know, Otto passed away in his sleep last week, and it, it's sad uh, when comics die, certainly someone who's 53 years old, sad when anyone dies. But uh, this was a truly unique act, and I think really a, an act that, that most people don't know. And I reached out to Otto uh, because... I did a live WTF in Brooklyn uh, back when I was doing more of those. And I had booked this woman, Heather Knight, who uh, had designed a robot that uh, that told jokes. And in my mind, the only way to, 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 to counter that would be to book Otto and George on the same show to answer what I thought was going to be sort of a charade. And you know, I, I, don't, I didn't like the whole idea about the joke robot, but Heather was stunning. And uh, it turned out to be a, a great guest, but but Otto and George uh, also did the show. And I remember it was really the first time I'd met Otto and I'd known about him for years. And he was very sweet and he's very old school in a lot of ways. It was just hilarious. I, I could not stop laughing. And and he's definitely going to be missed. But but more than more than that, I want people to know about Otto and George. And I want to share with you, if I could, this uh, this clip of Otto and George, because I really think it exemplifies at least the relationship between between Otto and George, and also just exactly you know what made them so great. This is from episode one fifty seven of WTF, which was live from the Bell House in Brooklyn uh, in March two thousand eleven. Uh, we're going to miss you, Otto, uh, and and this was really a high point uh, of 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 all the live shows that I did. So I, please enjoy it if you have not heard it. 
Yeah, people like that subtext that a ventriloquist is mentally ill, so I always try and feed that a little bit. <laughs> but, but you're not. Well, I, I'm, I'm mental. You know, I have uh, mental issues, but uh, I don't have the thing where I talk to the puppet off stage. I'm, I've been spared that horror. <clears throat> <laughs> now, when, when you were a kid, though, like, why, why this? Well, he finds you interesting. I fucking hate you. All right. Despise you. Jeff Dunham made 37 million last year. You're working in a fucking strip mall in fucking Scranton. <laughs> fucking suck on the end of the shotgun, you fucking loser. Be yeah, alone. Don't be negative. <laughs> Do, does it, does it piss, did you ever think about making more puppets? Next question. All right. Yeah. Oh, oh, you mean... This guy's trying to squeeze me out of the act. All right. Yeah, get 17 more fucking puppets that can fail in show business for 50 fucking years. I tried to get on a Jerry Lewis telethon. They said, I couldn't get you on that show if you had the disease. That was Otto and George. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I was beside myself with laughter there. Uh, that was, uh, that was uh, episode 157 of WTF, uh, live from the Bell House in Brooklyn in March 2011. Now, look, where are we at now? Where are we at now? I, our guest today is Alan Bursky. Again, uh, many of you may not know who Otto and George is. I'm sure even fewer of you know who Alan Bursky is. Now, Alan Bursky, in the world that I come from, for years I'd heard Alan Bursky's name. He was infamous for years. And this is going back a generation. This is more important to the generation before me. Uh, than it is even to to my generation or perhaps to the people who are who are younger than me. But for years, Alan Bursky was the name I had. He was known to be the guy that gave Freddie Prince the gun that Freddie Prince used to kill himself. The rumor was it was Alan Bursky's gun that Freddie Prince used to commit suicide with. That's all I knew about Alan Bursky. And then his name would come up here and there, Bursky, Bursky. I'm like, who the fuck is this Bursky? He had this dark power over my mind. I'd never seen him. I didn't know who he was. And uh, and then I ran into him at Cantor's Deli. This guy, this slightly rounded guy with no hair, very pleasant gentleman. He goes, hi, I'm Alan Bursky. I'm like, you're Alan Bursky? You're the, you're the dark wizard? Yeah. And I'm like, we got to talk, man. Because uh, as it turns out, you know, Bursky is... He's just another piece of the amazing dark puzzle that is the comedy store. A lot of you guys, you know, you listen to my show, you 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 listen to um uh to all these episodes and you know that I'm obsessed with the comedy store. You know that uh <laughs> that that it's important to me to put some sort of history together. Uh those of you who are regular listeners or who are WTF uh uh, you know, you know, deep cuts people. Uh, you'll be able to recognize some of the names in this conversation. There's a lot of callbacks. It's actually what's weird is it the, the only moment of friendly banter that I had with Gallagher on the infamous episode of this show where he stormed out of a hotel room, the only moment where we actually had a mo- uh, like a little bit of levity was when Alan Bursky came up. And uh, um, you know what? I'm I'm actually I'm going to play the clip for you. This is from, uh, this is from the the Gallagher episode of WTF. This is Gallagher talking about the gun, uh, which which Alan we which Alan will address uh, in the interview. Alan Bursky, Mr. Alan Bursky. Bursky, you don't remember Mr. Fre- Bursky? Freddie Prince's gun was rumored to belong to uh, Alan Bursky. 
That's how he, that's how he fits into Rumored, the mix. Rumored, of course it was. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because uh, Alan liked guns, and he played around and with the two of those guys were friends, and sure. But you can get guns in L.A. I'm not going to blame Alan. For- Anyone can get a gun in this country. Again, that was probably the most pleasant portion of the Gallagher episode. The Gallagher is episode 145. It's one of the most listened to episodes of this show. Uh, if you haven't heard it, you can get the app and upgrade to premium to hear it. Uh, also, if you have not heard the Alan Steven episode, it's a great companion to this episode. Uh, that one is still up for free. That's episode 475. The other ones, here we go. Let's put the Comedy Store puzzle together. The other ones you should listen to if you have the premium upgrade. Uh, Jimmy Schubert, episode 202. Jimmy Walker, episode 327. And Don Barris, episode 411. All right, there's a lot of things in this episode that are callbacks to things that those guys talked about. I think even a little bit of Richard Lewis. Uh, if I remember correctly. And also, I, I hope some of you are clear, if you don't know who Freddie Prince is, Freddie Prince was one of the youngest comedians to ever break. Uh, he was in a sitcom called uh, Chico and the Man. He was a great comic. It was interesting uh, for in the Latino community. I mean, many people you know, know who Freddie Prince is. He didn't live long. He died very young at his own hand. And you'll, you'll hear Bursky talk about it. But Freddie Prince and Alan Bursky were two of the youngest guys to ever do The Tonight Show. And we'll talk to Bursky about that. But Bursky sees himself as a comedic uh, historian. Another real historian of comedy is, of course, uh, my friend Cliff Nesteroff, uh, even though he hates being called that. I talked to Cliff. Uh, that's a great episode, too. If you are if you got the premium app, listen to that one, too. That was astounding. And I'm going to be doing a, some more stuff with Cliff, hopefully. But I, I had Cliff on primarily to talk about uh, his uh, event tomorrow night. That's at the Cine Family here in Los Angeles. It's an evening with George Schlatter, who is, uh, you know, who created Laughing. Uh, he's, you know, he is the source of all things TV funny after a certain point. Uh, but uh, but Cliff is hosting a, an event with him, and, and I'm going to talk to Cliff about that now. Cliff Nesteroff is here, the man who you might remember from his episode, a comedy historian, I've decided. You have decided. I hate the word historian. I prefer a writer, not comedy writer, but a writer who uh, specializes in writing about comedy. I will accept what, historian, in, but... In what way do you like to write about comedy? Let's just get to the, the semantic root of this. Mm. Do you, and how do you write about comedy, Cliff? Well, I like to uh, discover things and information that people haven't written about previously. From the past, Cliff? nobody loves a historian mark Marin. nobody loves a historian people talk about their favorite musicians their favorite writers their favorite comedians nobody talks about their favorite historian well the truth of the matter is i uh am a a a big supporter of your work i like the way you write about comedy people who have not read your work or have listened to uh or have not listened to our our hour-long episode of wtf what where do they go where do you send them you can read my stuff on the WFMU website, their website, Beware of the Blog. You can follow me on Twitter and find a link to uh, all those uh, essays about the history of show business and comedy at uh, Classic Showbiz yeah. on Twitter. And you like to you like to scour the dark and, and sordid corners of well, the show business experience. Certainly. Well, I think naturally speaking, the stuff that's most interesting uh in history and simply if you're constructing a story it's got to have action 
It's nice to have some sex. It's nice to have some violence. It's nice to have some drugs. And uh, I don't sell myself as like a Hollywood Babylon uh, exploitive writer, but let's face the facts. Uh, Drugs are interesting. Violence is interesting. Sex, struggle, failure, and uh, succeeding. Uh, That narrative I find uh, fascinating, and I think other people do too. I like the way that you, a Canadian who rides his bike around, uh, is now like fully embracing and integrating himself uh into the into the the show business realm i fucking love show business i love hollywood you do, man i love los angeles i i make no uh apologies for uh, embracing uh, los angeles it's the best you don't like it for the right reasons necessarily well what's the right reason to like it to, because you uh, believe in the beauty of the business of show. You like it because it's like just layers and layers of sordid stuff has gone on. Well, I like the, I like the success and the failure. Okay. I like the yahoos and the uh, talented people. And I believe that there's room for both. And as we both know from observing show business, at the top of show business, there are incredibly talented people and completely untalented people. But there's a spot for both. And on the bottom is the same thing as well. I love all of that. I just I just eat it up. So what are, what are what is this? Are you you're involved with the Cinefamily uh, Theater. Right. So basically what we're doing now at the Cinefamily at Fairfax and Melrose, which is a great little theater, um, is I'm starting to present shows there that are kind of live versions of what I've been writing about based on the history of comedy. Some involves the mob, some doesn't. We have a show that by the time this airs will be over with Mel Brooks. It's our tribute to Sid Caesar. We're presenting a 35 millimeter screening of 10 from your show of shows, which is a 1972 theatrical release of uh, 10 of the best sketches from the early 50s NBC show that starred Sid Caesar, that Mel Brooks wrote on, that Carl Reiner worked for, that Neil Simon wrote on. Um, And coming up on April the 22nd, a Tuesday, I'm presenting an evening with George Schlatter, a fellow who I've talked about before on your show. And if you talk to any guy from the 60s or 70s on your show, generally George Schlatter's name came up. Um, All the way into, like, he was part of something I did in in probably the 80s. Right, yeah. uh, Producing some stand-up showcasing. I don't remember. It was a boom era 80s show, just another one of those millions of boom era But he was part of it. That's right. Sort of a heavyset guy with a beard, you know, at a... but you've you've built this relationship. I mean, he created Laughing. He created Laughing. The thing about George is he harkens back to another time, not just another time of comedy, but another time of approaching show business. He is a, an incredibly affable, personal guy. He's one of those guys who probably had a lot of verbal contracts with people that lasted their whole careers. But in the 50s, he started as a uh, bouncer and then entertainment booker at Ciro's Nightclub on the Sunset Strip, which of Ciro's. course- Became the comedy store. Became the comedy store. Uh, we got to have, we, you and I got, we're going to do a whole episode on Ciro's. Yes, we must do that. So George was there uh, in the 50s, and that's how he met everybody in show business, because it was a key nightclub. The Will Maston Trio with Sammy Davis Jr., uh, you know... Any big star in the early 50s, comedian or otherwise, went through Ciro's. George got to know them all. Because of that, got hired at NBC as a talent booker for the Dinah Shore show, which was a big variety show at the time, um, and went on to do a lot of interesting things. Um, the Steve Lawrence show, the Judy Garland show he produced. He used to drink with Judy Garland. She'd phone him at 3 in the morning crying. He'd have to go over there and uh, and drink Lowenbrow with her. Um, it was George, low, had to be Lowenbrow. Had to be Lowenbrow. George got fired after six episodes of producing the Judy Garland show. The musical director was Mel Torme. The director yeah. was Norman Jewison. Just had this storied career. Created Laughing. Uh, gave Lily Tomlin her big break. Gave Goldie Hawn her big break. Hired Lorne Michaels when he was nobody in 1969 to write on Laughing. Um, gave Andy Kaufman uh, his first uh, regular series. 
uh, pre-taxi, gave Robin Williams his first shot, pre-Mork and Mindy, Mork and Mindy um, gave Roseanne her first TV shot, pre-Carson. Um, just he's had this incredible multi-decade career and has had this eye for talent all throughout it. And if you go to his office on Beverly Boulevard, it's this incredibly old-school Hollywood office with a framed photo of him with everybody imaginable, from John Wayne to Betty Davis to uh, Richard Nixon to Ronald Reagan. You know, there's a photo of him on the wall with Barbara Bush giving him the bunny ears behind him. And you're like, well, what? what? How did that happen? What yeah. is that? Yeah. All you did was create laughing. How did you create this How massive network? cozy up to so many Republicans? Yeah, bizarre. <laughs> bizarre. But every Everybody loves George, and yeah. he's a uh, he's a he's a real uh, left wing liberal. But he also loves to be in the annals of power, and he is, and he always has been, and he's loved by everybody in the business, even though he can be a uh, cutthroat businessman. So, how do you structure this evening? April twenty second at the Cine Family. It's an evening with George Schlatter. I'll be interviewing him on stage, and we've called some incredible clips that haven't been seen in over forty five years from his archive. He's got a copy of everything he ever did at his office. Uh, things that have never rerun since. So, uh, I'm going to be interviewing him on stage. It's much in the same format of uh, some of the interviews I've published online with guys like Jack Carter and Shecky Green, where it's fairly detailed and we go into the crannies of things that typical uh, interviews do not address or ask them about. Uh -huh. So I'll be talking to George about his relationship at Ciro's and with Mickey Cohen, the little tough guy mobster in Los Angeles at the time. George used to have to uh, drop off hat boxes at his haberdashery full of money uh -huh. and then come back with these, uh, with these other boxes full of something or other. We'll be talking about that. He was there the night that Sammy Davis Jr. returned after he lost his eye. Harry Kahn, the head of Columbia uh, Pictures, had sicked the mob on Sammy Davis because he was romancing his white, blonde, blue-eyed uh, movie star, Kim Novak. And he said, I don't want, uh, you know, I won't use the word, but I don't want a black guy uh, dating my starlet. When Sammy Davis Jr. didn't break up with him, with her, uh, Harry Kahn sent the mob after Sammy. Sammy lost an eye in a car accident. George was there the night Sammy came back to Ciro's, the big triumphant return to showbiz. Wait, was the eye lost in per, uh, because of the mob? Yes. Uh, he was ran off the road. They tried to kill him in a, in a car accident. This is a storied, storied legend. Um, and I don't know what it was that he punctured his eyeball on in the... Uh, in the uh, car, George tells this story better than I do, and he will tell it on stage on the 22nd. But uh, George was a key figure at all these moments in showbiz history. So we're going to be talking about that and then throwing to some very rare clips. We have an extremely rare clip from the Steve Lawrence show in 1964, something called the... Uh, the Great Gleason Express. When uh -huh. Jackie Gleason moved his show from New York to Miami, he took a train and threw a 48-hour party on the train with him and Steve Lawrence and uh, Frank Fontaine, Crazy Guggenheim. And he hired Albert Mazels, the great cinema verite yeah. uh, filmmaker who from was an unknown- Gimme Shelter. Mm -hmm, from Gimme Shelter and Salesman and Grey Gardens. Yeah. When he was nobody, another talent that George discovered, yeah. hired him to film the whole train ride with Jackie Gleason, this great black and white cinema verite, Gleason getting increasingly drunker and drunker over the course of the trip. Uh, so we're showing that, and that hasn't been seen since 1964. The whole thing or just clips? It's about uh, 10 minutes long. 
that uh, segment. In it its is, entirety. Yes. And by Albert Mazels, it's fantastic. You got to see but it. But is that all this, the footage that was edited together was just 10 minutes as a segment on the show? Yes. I asked George about that. Like, what happened to the rest yeah. of it, the outtakes? And he said, well, in those days for TV, they just threw everything out. It wasn't considered art back yeah. then. Even though it was Albert Mazels, this is but the pre success. Uh, no, fuck art. How about just a historical archive of a. You would think, but really, everything, it's amazing that George has anything at all because most stuff from that era did either get burned or for shelf shot, space or was uh, recorded over. Or shot live, sure, yeah. Yeah. And uh, kinescopes were of a poor quality. Sometimes they caught on fire in storage. Yeah. You know, there's any number of stories why this stuff uh, doesn't really exist. It's wild, man. One of the most insane things that we're showing is actually um, Red Fox's primetime debut from 1968, a show called Soul. Mm-hmm. It was a spinoff of Laugh-In. George was a big uh, groundbreaker in civil rights. He wanted to do an all-black version of Laugh-In, and he did. It only aired once. It stars uh, Slappy White, Red Fox, George Kirby, Heinz, Heinz, and Dad, which was Gregory Heinz before he was famous, Lou Rawls when he was still a soul singer before he got into jazz, and uh, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. Wow. So, so we're going to be showing footage of that, and it is really, really cool. It's from 1968. Well, this sounds amazing. So it's April 22nd? April 22nd at uh, 7.30 p.m. at the Cine Family. You can go on their website, cinefamily.org, and uh, and find that listing April 22nd. I'm also tweeting about it uh, regularly these days. But it's going to be a great show. There's going to be some surprise guests in the audience from George's career. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So, um, all right. So do, uh, can I get in or... You can come if you want. Yes, by all means, please do. And these are going to be a regular thing at the Cine Family from now on. Currently, we're planning a 100th birthday party for the Professor Erwin Corey, who turns 100 years old on June 29th. If he's alive still, June 29th, we'll be doing that show. Have you been in touch with him? Yes. He desperately wants us to put this on and desperately wants to come. He's a little bit weary of flying because he's not in Hollywood. He's in New York. But I said, you know, what better way to die than en route to your 100th (laughs) birthday, you know? So how do you take that? He was totally game. And he's, you know, he was one of the first guys to do marijuana-related material, which, you know, pot humor is a hack thing now. But in 1947... When uh, another professor, the professor Erwin Corey, did it on stage, uh, it was fresh, it was new, and he's still a uh, chronic pot smoker. So we want to bring him out here, get him his medical marijuana license in California, <laughs> and get him to light a joint off uh, one of the hundred candles on his birthday cake. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Professor Nesteroff. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Mark. So that was Cliff Nesteroff. Go to that. You can go to uh, www.cinefamily.org. Uh, and find the uh, the event information if you want to talk to George Schwatter. I should actually have George Schwatter on this show. It's Bursky time. It's time for Bursky. Okay? It's time for Bursky. This was a, a, a strange honor for me because uh, he's one of the lost voices of the dark history of the comedy store. Please enjoy my conversation with Alan Bursky. I probably was on the Tonight Show when you were in high school. I know. I was wondering about that. Your first Tonight Show was 1970 what? Three. April. But you were a kid. You were in high school. I was at uh, first year of Valley College. Uh-huh. Actually. M- move that mic in so you don't get too far away from it. Is this on? Yeah. Oh, just didn't. I don't see any lights. <laughs> it's a garage. I, I, I know. But, so 18 so, years old, you do the Tonight Show. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I did. I started out. You yeah, know, as a kid, like a lot of kids, you know, doing magic. You know, I was always. The, uh, Where'd you grow up, though? Um, uh, Brooklyn and Far Rockaway. 
Bensonhurst Borough Park, Far Rockaway. But you're out here at 18. How the hell did that happen? My parents moved out here. When they we, did? When, when I was like just For about what? 16. It's a long, long story. My dad was just one of these guys. Yeah. You know what kind of guy? You know, my dad was a cross between Leo Gorsi, you know, Slip Mahoney character, and Archie Bunker kind of guy. Um, (laughs) Yeah. He uh, actually did time for truck hijacking. Oh yeah. Did he? Was he mob affiliated? Kinda. Yeah. Everybody in you know Brooklyn growing up in that area. Yeah. I had relatives who married into them. uh, You know. But he was hijacking trucks on his own. Volition? With people, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. How uh, much time did he do? 16 months, uh, Rikers Island. When you were what, 15? Uh, no, when I was man, much younger, 11. Oh, really? Yeah, he... Uh, so he's, he's working on the angles, your father. Yeah, and um, he, his parents both died at 49 years of age of heart disease. Anyway, um, so he has a heart attack at 40. Yeah. Uh, 1972, uh-huh. something like that. And he just, you know, really didn't want to work again. He was a he was a truck driver, and he, he was also, you know, a caterer, a good uh-huh. deli man. Uh-huh. My uncle, well, my father's first cousin. They would grow up because my dad was orphaned at fifteen. He right. with my my his cousin Murray, first cousin, Uncle Murray, and they were were they, you know, my father's side of the family were Jewish delicatessen slash mobsters, and my mother's side Greek, all diners. Oh, really? Yeah. That restaurant family though. Yeah, so anyway, the point is, so he always worked after the heart attack off the books. Yeah. You know, as, as, as at delis. Yeah. Nate Nals. Yeah. Um, Cantor's. Uh-huh. And, uh, what is it? Was he a, a, a meat guy? A yeah, counter guy? Yeah, counter guy. Okay. My, my dad, you know, Thanksgiving, you think. He died, at, he died um, in 1987, 56 years old of lung cancer. Five heart attacks, you know, 400 cholesterol and freaking heart, lung disease killed him. Huh. But uh, the thing was, I was going to say is, so we moved out here when I was like 16. Um, and I was, you know, going around open mic nights, you know. Doing magic. Well, no, I didn't do magic then. I I, I grew up doing magic. And yeah. from that, I worked after schools and, you know, holidays at Lieutenant's, one of the biggest magic stores in the world at, at that time. Where was that? 42nd and 6th. Oh, yeah. And in, in this building... It's long torn down. That whole yeah. area's changed. And, um, you know, after school, people would say, oh, that's how Johnny Carson started. And, you know, I was, I was like 14, 15. Yeah. And I go, who the hell is Johnny Carson, you yeah. know? <laughs> so I would stay up late at night and watch, you know, The Tonight Show uh-huh. when I can. And uh, started to do a talking magic act. I did one of those acts where, you know, I'll show you my first 8 by 10. This yeah. is 8 14. Baffling Bursky. Anyway. That so- was... That was your stage name? Yeah, Baffling Bursky. Um, and, and, at 14? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people say, were you the class clown? Mm-hmm. I go, no, I was the class wit. Mm-hmm. Class clown was the idiot who stuck pencils up his nose. Right. He's probably working Walmart yeah. today. You know, I always had... <laughs> or maybe. You know, I always had a smart remark, you know. Yeah, you, uh, you're clever. Clever. So, you know, I was pretty good, in, you know, on my feet. You know, where are you from? I grew up in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Family's from Jersey, though. God, you seem like such a New Yorker. Well, yeah, I spent a good part of my life in the East Coast. Wow, Albuquerque. Well, they're from Jersey. Well, I know, but it just sounds so... I've never, you know... Yeah, I know. It, it just it, seems so... I just Some renegade so, clan of Jews moved so, to Albuquerque. They just didn't make it to L.A. I, that's so... I don't... Okay, but the point <laughs> is... Yeah. Uh, um, I, you know, we had... You know what a hitter is? Mm-mm. 
hitters are guys, you know, the school kind of bullies, tough guys. Yeah. Hitter, they'd stand on street corners. Right. And, you know, if you walk by them, they go, what do you say about my mother? Mm. You know, and we Just had- starting shit. Yeah, we had one guy, Ronnie Echeverria. Mm. And if I would see him, you know, Central Avenue, Far Rockaway, or, or in front of the pizza place, mm-hmm. I would cross the street mm-hmm. and walk around them. Mm-hmm. Well, one day I'm walking up the street, you know, must have been 12 and I didn't notice the guy. He was like, you know, my our age, but a bigger kid, you know, and a tough kid. And I didn't notice him. And as I walk by, I hear, what did you say about my mother? And I turn around, and it's Ronnie Trevera. I said, wonderful woman raised three lovely sons. <laughs> and he just kept walking. I kept, he started laughing, and I kept walking. And that was the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just... In the moment where, you know, to not get your ass kicked. Yeah, and I did. It saved me from an ass kicking. Yeah. You know, one time, I'll tell you the ass kicking I did get. My mother said to me, when are you going to start washing behind your ears? And I said, when are you going to start cleaning behind the refrigerator? And and she gave me a smack in the head. Yeah. Uh, So there you go. You knew both sides of comedy. So I start doing a magic act. I do a talking magic act. And I start collecting comedy albums. What do you mean a talking magic act versus what? Uh, versus, you know, like, you know, the guys who come on, you know, the classic one, like Channing Pollock. Lance Burton started with, you know, the music would play and he would just produce cards or birds. And that was and, it. Yeah. So they doing, never spoke. You're, you're doing shtick. Yeah. I'm doing, I'm doing a, 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 they call it a manipulative act, meaning sleight of hand card fans. Yeah. You know, the cards keep coming, billiard balls. Yeah. You know, that kind of act. From that, I start doing tricks, but talking in between them. Yeah. And I'm, I'm actually kind of funny. I start, you know, going to open mic night you know where and my, my parents would take me to the village um the champagne gallery the african room jimmy walker started there i had i put together like you know a little bit of london lee a little bit of david brenner i had the one gabe kaplan joke ling Chao, which everyone told me wasn't his joke anyway yeah and that's why gabe hated me for stealing a joke and i get a reputation as a kid for being a thief i'm 15 16 doing open mic nights you know yeah. david brenner i was 16 he was 35 threatened to kick my ass because I took material of his at open mic night. And he night. saw you at open mic night or what? A friend of his saw me at an open mic night and told him. That's something. So it was as, as big a deal then as it is now. It was a, you know, then you would have gotten your, much bigger deal. Then you would have gotten your ass kicked. Mm-hmm. You know, you would have seriously, you know, somebody would have caught you. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you know, you know, it would have been big, bad news. But in those days I heard, you know, Gabe Kaplan, they said that Robert Klein grabbed him and threw him out of the improv. I remember in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, Robin Williams was the biggest star in the world. Yeah. If he was in Catch a Rising Star, guys wouldn't go on. Right. I heard that too. Um, uh, you know, and, and people, you know, you know, but back, you know, in my day, sounds so old. You know, you you just wouldn't do it. But I got a reputation. As, I, I mean, I never took someone's act or mm-hmm. or any material and went on television and did it, or went, you know went and got paid. You were a to kid do it. trying to figure it you out. Got, yeah. So anyway. Yeah. So you're so 16, we, 17. You come out here. You're come an out open here, miker. Yeah, and, and you you're know, already a thief. Yeah, and you know, at the, you know, in those days, you went to you know the little club where yeah. Joan Rivers used to break in material where she moved. Where up. was that? Uh, Cannon Drive and lifts below Santa Monica Boulevard. So this is seventy two. Yeah. Okay. 71. 71. Moved out here February 71. So there's no comedy clubs yet? No. Anyway, um, the comedy store opened April 10th, 73. Yeah. And I'm walking up. The, there was a place on Riverside in Lancashire. It's now a jewelry store, a tire place, Art Crown's Comedy Showcase. Uh-huh. And he didn't have a, a liquor license. He just sold, you know, coffee and juice and soda. Yeah. And Mitzi sure said, I was the first one to always put just straight comedians on, you know. I said, no, Art Crown. She goes, you're crazy, but she doesn't know. 
Art Crown. So all these guys, like Mike Shy, who became Michael Sherman, Murray Langston and Freeman King, the unknown comic, they were a comedy yeah. team. Uh, George Miller. Uh-huh. In those days, you know, they had singers there too, but I used to go to the Ice House. You would see Lily Tomlin in the height of laughing, mm-hmm. Smothers Brothers, Pat Paulson, Gabe Kaplan worked there a lot. Craig T. Nelson did stand-up. Sure. You know, you know I used to see him there. Was anyway, he funny? Yeah, he did some great stuff. Yeah, well, I could see that. So there was no real showcase room that was lower key than a showroom. You know, Showca- like a- there were no showcase rooms where, where the improv is was the Ash Grove. They were called Hootenanny Nights. Talent Nights were called Hootenannies in those yeah. days. And there were a lot of those kinds of rooms. And you would just get on, try and get on. So were they music clubs or anything like that? They did music, uh, sure. you know, you know uh, singers and stuff. So it was a variety show, kind of. Yeah. I was telling uh, Richard uh, Scheidner the other night, we just were at the Laugh Factory in Las Vegas, when the improv had all these singers. And I just called Jay Leno, and I spoke to him yesterday, because, um, and Jay didn't remember any of them, but Adele Blue, he used to date her in, the, you know, like 75. Yeah. There was Rick Moses, Lisa Mordente is the daughter of Rita Marino and Tony mm-hmm. Mordente, Lisa Mordente, Rick Moses, uh, Bruce Scott, Marilyn Rubin. Mm-hmm. I went on naming, you know, and, and Leno says to me, I said, how do you remember these names? I said, I don't know, but Rick Moses was doing Merv Griffin shows. He was getting very hot. Good looking So you talk to Leno often? Yeah, a couple times a month. Yeah. You know, Jay used to eat at my house almost every day, you know. So what I was saying was, okay. anyway, comedy store for, opens. I'm walking up the street, April 10th, 73. I'm walking up the boulevard, sunset, with Abe Carno about, you know, 7.30 at night. So there are these guys hanging out in front, Yeah. you know, who I knew from Art Crowns or, you know, yeah. Jimmy Martinez. He was there the first night the comedy store opened. Jonathan Moore, British comic who played the bagpipes when he first went on. All these guys are there. I said, what's this? And he goes, it's just comedy store. And, you know, I don't know. And I tried to go in, and they wouldn't let me in. I was um, 17. You had to be 21. Yeah. So Sammy and Rudy. Sammy Shore. Yeah. Uh, let me go on. It's 5 to 2 in the morning. I could go in and then walk out. A month or two later, I get a job parking cars there just for tips. In the back lot. Right, right on the side there. Yeah. yeah. Long story short. Uh, a year to the day later, I did my first Tonight Show. Drove everybody crazy. They were ripping my pictures down, you know, comics. The comics. Yeah. Well, you were a novelty in a way. Well, three year, three weeks literally after my 18th birthday, uh, Byron Allen says he's the youngest. He says he's 17 now. He's full of shit. Byron was 18, but for six months longer than his birthday than I was. Uh-huh. Then comes Freddie Prince Sr. Yeah. Anyway, and that's basically how it started. How'd you get that? Get what? The Tonight, Tonight Show. Show. I started just getting better and better and better at, at, at the comedy store. You know, I go from five to two in the morning. But this is before Mitzi. Yeah. Sammy Shaw was the owner and runs it. Mitzi, and, and Mitzi the, would come in and run it when Sammy or Rudy were out of town. But the idea was that Sammy wanted a, a clubhouse almost for yeah. his old buddies. Well, not really. Just Sammy was working the horn a lot and wanted to showcase more or less for himself. Uh, you still friends with him? I saw him last year in Vegas. You yeah. Know? Um, still looks good. Still, you know, 84, 85, uh-huh. you know, very, very active, very, you know, uh, lucid, very, you know, I mean, I, I hope you and I should be in that shape at 84. Um, so, um, you know, those days, a manager came in, um, Jerry Cutler mm-hmm. signed me. Um, people start coming in, hearing about me. Flip, you know, those days, 
you know, I don't know, you look back, it's nostalgia or something. You know, Mitzi chased the industry out of there. But in those days, it was, you know, by, by 74, 75, when Mitzi first took over. But when Jimmy Walker was at the height of, of good times, and then Freddie Prinze and Chico and the Man and Gabe Kaplan, Welcome Back Cotter, Steve Martin was always there, Richard Pryor. There were lines around the block. Clint Eastwood was there, you know. Let's get to there. So so Sammy has this place. So now you're there. You're, you're actually, actually almost grandfathered in. Yeah, kind of, yeah. So, so so Mitzi comes in. What happens? Right? What was the story? Well, I got, I got on The Tonight Show before Mitzi came in. Sammy, the place wasn't- Were you really... living with Freddie Prince yet? No, no. Uh, I live. I moved in with- Fre- Freddie Prince moved in with me December 73. So who were you living with? My your folks, parents? my parents. Yeah, okay. When um, you did The Tonight Show, you yeah. were with your parents. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> What's so funny? What isn't funny, Alan? I don't know, but that's it's, it's cute. I'm not laughing for the wrong reason. I know that, but it just seems like, you know, I tell this to people. And people, look, I wore the pin today because I met Chaplin. People go, I spent time with Woody Allen. I met Charlie Chaplin. Um, so people go, oh, you're a freak. I go, what are you, 90? I said, no. <laughs> anyway, the point is, yeah, the Sammy. comedy store things, you know, kind of level off, and Sammy needed to make money, so he yeah. goes back on the road. So was he making money at the store? No, they ran it, him and Rudy. So he lets Mitzi take it over. Now, Mitzi, in those days, there was no lineup. But was was it, this was with the, uh, she took it over when he was, he, he was away. This was before the divorce? or the, after? Before the divorce. Okay. So, Mitzi, you know, you if anybody important came in, like George Slaughter in those days or anything, yeah. Sammy would go on and Rudy would go on with, uh, you know, Craig T. Nelson and Barry Levinson was there all the time, the director. Pat McCormick would go on. Jackie Gale would go on. You never knew when you would go on. You would hang out there all night. They'd just wing it. Yeah, and if and if you weren't one of the better ones or on TV or one of the names, you know, Red Fox would come in. Or you know, Really? Yeah. What was that like? Red Fox? We're watching these guys. Like it, was, McCormick. it was great. And Jackie Gale was probably one of the greatest nightclub comics ever. Yeah. Um, you didn't ever see him, did you? I saw. I only saw him in Broadway, Danny Rose. Well, and I and, and I and I think I did a little research, but he was a club comic. There's no yeah. records or anything. No, no, but he's one of those guys who made a good living but didn't become a star. Like he Mitchell Walters. That. I grew up with Mitchell in Brooklyn. Yeah, oh, Mitchell. You know how much material I, I bought a lot of material from Mitchell Walters that he has sold to ten other guys. <laughs> and he claims he sold me the car bit, and he goes, "I only told you, sold it to you to use on ships." I said, "Mitchell." You sold it to me. You sent me a contract, and I, I have it. I got to show it. The to car him. bit. Yeah. What's the car bit? You name a car, and yeah. he, uh, uh, Fiat, fix it again, Tony. Yeah. Uh, Kia kills innocent Americans. Yeah. Jaguar. Jews and Germans usually argue retail. Yeah. Every car. Okay. And the end bit is Corvette. Small penis. <laughs> you know. Uh, Mitchell's actually a good sli- does some really kind of good sleight of hand card tricks. He used to. I mean, he did magic. That's how I knew. I, him. I only knew him briefly. Like when I, by the time I got to the store in '87, yeah, I was out of my mind on coke. And and Mitchell was in and out in terms of like he right. he was on the road all the time, but he was a character. And Mitch- I always heard stories about coke and gambling. Well, well, I'll tell you two stories about Mitchell. Yeah, and then I'll deny one because he'll want the money back. I'll say I made it up, but Mitchell showed me a card trick. Yeah. We lived in an apartment building on the corner of Selma Avenue and Laurel Avenue, up the block from the Laugh Factory. Now yeah. it was Greenblatt's. My yeah. dad managed a building. They used to call it Fort Bursky. In the building, Mike Binder lived, Alan Stevens, Roseanne Arquette, when she's you know, she started breaking in as actress. My dad managed a building. My mother and father lived in one unit. I lived in another. They took over a unit that Dave Madden lived in the whole time he worked on the Partridge film and everything. He must have saved a fortune. The manager? On the Partridge family? Yeah, I yeah. played his nephew, Alan King. They, I'll show you a picture of me on the Partridge family. Yeah. They showed me on the Tonight Show, wrote me in for yeah. the last season. Anyway, 
Mitchell, we our bal- my father's bal- parents' balcony in their apartment overlooked the swimming pool. Yeah. Mitchell has me pick a card. Yeah. Shuffles it back in the deck, walks out to the balcony. Yeah. Throws the deck in the air, lands in the swimming pool. All the cards are floating face down. One card is floating face Stop up. My it. card. Yeah. And I still knew magic. I'm always at the magic castle. You know, I still collected magic books and everything. I'd never seen this before. Yeah. Couldn't freaking believe it. <laughs> How the hell? I mean, to this day, and I've seen some great stuff. This yeah. was one of One day I walk in the magic shop, Hollywood yeah. Magic on Hollywood Boulevard. They just closed. And the show, guy shows me a trick. Not that trick, but something like it with a trick deck. And I went, son of a bitch, Mitchell. That's how you did it. Two-sided card? Yeah. One, he forces the card on me, and I wasn't paying attention. Let's say it's a nine of hearts. Yeah. Every card in the deck is has double backs on them, right? Right, right. And the nine of hearts has a double nine of hearts yeah. on either way. Yeah. That's how he did it. Uh-huh. Oh, he, there you go. And as we walked across the living room to the balcony, he put the deck in his pocket, took yeah. out the fake deck, right. and threw that in the air. Right. So he got you. Yeah, but I mean, for years, I couldn't... <laughs> figure this out it's the best trick you ever saw i mean and i've seen some great tricks what's the other mitchell walter story <laughs> mitchell i i've gone broke this is like like the third time in my life i've lost three fortunes in my life how spending it how on what what i have i have maybe three dozen ties in my closet that were 250 dollars a tie but only ties no gambling no drugs D- drugs yeah a lot of the atm was giving me my money already rolled up <laughs> good one <laughs> you know you know and those you know you know people you know, my doorbell would ring at four in the morning and there'd be a playmate there yeah you know i was trying to collect you know a year of playmates not that one year but i've got an april i've got a february you, you know did, all um, right yeah and then they go hey you want a party let's do coke you know <laughs> yeah, you know late 70s right early the 80s. late 70s early 80s yeah. again in the early 90s <laughs> you know i mean I've gone broke, belly up again, in uh, 93. Mm-hmm. Mitchell had won a lawsuit, like, on about $300,000. Yeah. Mitchell says to me, I'm in Port Jefferson. You know, I was staying, when I went back broke in 86, the yeah. first, you know, first time, um, my father was dying, my mo- grandmother was dying, my grandfather was dying. My mother's taking care of all these people. Right. Port Jeff at the house. I'm living there, making $50 a month from, you know, on my ass, I'm contemplating suicide anyway so i lived there that's when i met you and i start working regularly and i start doing well lame booze blah 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 blah. anyway mitchell says to me 93 busted again made a lot of money and spent it you know in in, in two years how'd you make the money just touring lane boozler touring cruise ship opening for a lane yeah yeah, cruise ships and we were making you know yeah it's making a hundred grand a year yeah 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 so you know anyway mitchell says to me and i had this big beautiful Pontiac sedan. Yeah. You know, as I said, you know, beautiful car. Mitchell says to me, pick, come from Port Jefferson to Woodmere, one end of Long Island to the other end of Long Island. Let's go in the city. I'm going to go to OTB. I'll buy you lunch. We'll get some packages, Coke, you know? Yeah. Anyway, I pick Mitchell up. His idea of going to lunch was the Korean grocery store next to OTB. Yeah. He's pulling money out of the ATM and showing me the balance, $281,000. And he's got it set up. He could take as much money as he wants. He's making $1,000 bets. My lunch is the Korean grocery store. Yeah. I go to the Hotel Chelsea. There was a dope dealer there we knew, Ray. Yeah. Poor guy died of uh, and, uh, uh, asthma. Uh-huh. I go pick up 
packages, you know, Coke. For Mitchell and I, I'm fighting with Mitchell. Give me, I had the last hundred dollars of my name. I'm fighting with Mitchell. Yeah. For, to give me my money back for the Coke. He promised a treat. When we left, uh, he wants to take the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Yeah. I want to go to 59th Street Bridge, the you know, Brooklyn Queens Expressway. I'm fighting with him for the $3.50 toll. Yeah. We're going to eat. I had to argue with him for McDonald's. Yeah. I'm furious. Yeah. This son of a bitch. You know, this is like November, somewhere around um, 93, something like that. And I'm going to kill him. You know, I'm just furious. I get home at midnight. And I'm a, I'm a neat freak. And I clean out the car, all this garbage, you know, McDonald's and shit. One o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call. Mitchell goes, I left a little piece of paper in your car. I said, what? He goes, it looks like a little receipt. It literally looks like a little, you know, one of those little, you yeah. know, cash register, you, yeah. know, you know, two inches by one inch, you know, receipt like yeah. that. It's, it's, it's an it's a, it's a OTB ticket. I won. He said, there's nothing in my car. Go, go. I go look in the car and I cleaned it out. Mitchell, there's nothing in the I go, son of a bitch, he's furious. That afternoon, I take my mother, mother doesn't drive, I take it to the market, and all of a sudden, in the corner of the seat, there's this little white piece of paper. Yeah. And I open it up, OTB. Yeah. I go to OTB, I, 900 bucks. Yeah. I go, fuck Mitchell. <laughs> you got it back. So someone, Mike Reynolds <laughs> said to me, if you tell him that, he'll want his money. I, said I, I said, I know, but I'll tell the story, and then when Mitchell comes to me, I'll say, Mitchell, I made it up. Yeah. All right, so let's go back. So Mitzi's running the store when Sammy's gone. Yeah, so with Mitzi, again, Mitzi has no ego about performing. So she starts making a lineup. Yeah. So now you know when you're going on. Right. And if you were a, a Freddie Prinze or a star, you got better times. If you were getting better, you got better times. If you were sleeping with her and you were the worst comic in the world, you got better times. Who were those guys? You know, Danny Stone. Oh, my God, back then? Yeah. In 1983, the main room lineup would be... Sam Kinnison, not, not many particular order. Sam Kinnison, Roseanne Barr, Barry Sobel, Bobcat Goldthwait, Kip Adada, um, Argus Hamilton, yeah. uh, Arsenio Hall. Mm -hmm. In the middle of those acts was Danny Stone. Yeah, right, I know. The show would come to a grinding halt. Doing his Rodney impression. Yes, and, and Bob Woods material. All right, so she's making a lineup, and this is 1974. 74. When the divorce came, my dad was then, you know, managing the club. My mother worked there part-time. Oh, really? He moved over from the, like, he had the apartment building and he was working it, at the club? Yeah, both. And even when we moved from the apartment building. And, uh, How did he get that job? My parents were hanging around with me. You know, I was a kid, you know? Right. You know, in those days, again, you know, Christmas, Easter, you know, Greek Orthodox Easter, I'm Greek Orthodox. Um, uh, we'd have big dinners, Thanksgiving, and these guys, Richard Lewis and uh, Elaine Boozler, you know, Tom Dreesen was my father's best friend. Mary Ellen, his ex-wife, who just passed away, was my mother's best friend. So these people were always at our house all the time. Billy Braver, yeah. um, George Miller. Thanksgiving Eve, yeah. Natalie Wood had died the day before. We're sitting at, there was a girl who was girlfriends of two comedians. She was the dope dealer. She lived in my apartment building too with, with her boyfriend who was a comic at that time. You go up to her apartment. Shit, should I name names? From Belushi to Freddie Prinze yeah. to, to... Yeah, if they're dead, you can name uh, Lou Rawls. Yeah. And there are a lot of big stars who are living. Hanging know? out, yeah. Yeah, even, well, you know, even, you know, uh, uh, you know Robin, who admits sure. to being a cokehead, but, yeah. but other major stars, you know. You'd be Just up hanging out because she, yeah, she was the chick that had yeah. this stuff, right. So, 
Now she's living someplace off of Hollywood, like Stanley, off of mm. Mel- Melrose, somewhere in that yeah. area. And it's a guest house in the back of an yeah. apartment building. And Richard Pryor's there. We're hanging. I'm hanging out with Pryor. Doing blow. All night. Yeah. It's a, The sun's not just about to come up. Yeah. And he's going to drive me. I lived on Doheny, a little, little below sunset. And um, he has a Rolls Royce. And he's going to drive me back to my place. I don't yeah. remember why I, I didn't have my car with me. He's going to drive me back to my place. And I look at him. And I said, you know, Richard, not that I'm complaining, you're my idol. This is how big of a star he was. He was about to do Superman 3. Yeah, okay? yeah. so it's later in his career even, really. Yeah, well, I mean, mid-career, mid yeah, uh, yeah, mid-Richard yeah. mid, mid Pryor superstar. So not that I'm complaining, you're, you're my idol. I, and I knew him before the comedy store opened. He would come around somebody open mic nights to hang around with the guys and take us to breakfast, you know, pay for it and shit. So, um and he's playing with the coke vial, yeah. doing bumps. He's not saying. I said, but you could be anywhere in the world right now yeah. with anyone in the world. Today's Thanksgiving. You should yeah. be with your family. And you're here with me. Yeah. I don't get it. And he's fucking around trying to get the coke even on the spoon in the vial. Yeah. Just, and he's doing some bumps. He's giving me some bumps. Literally several minutes go by doing this. And he doesn't say a word. And he just looks at me and he goes, I got the demon. Mm. That was that. Yeah. Last time I saw him was at the comedy store when you know George Slaughter had the comedy awards, and uh, he was couldn't talk. He was almost. Oh, well, you saw him at the end. Uh, yeah, he wasn't quite a vegetable yet. But yeah, he, he was, and he just had this smile, and I started to cry. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Anyway, the laugh stop when Mike Cayley opened the first laugh stop in Santa Ana, February '77. Mm-hmm. He was the one who created the comedy condo. The, the, the he was the one who created the, the the MC middle and headliner thing. He was the he gave Robin Williams his first paid job. Huh. Anyway, they opened an Encino Laugh Stop in the 81, 80, somewhere around there. Mike Cayley had managed to piss off so many comics, nobody would work for him anymore. So he had a partner, Mark Lumpkin. They'd make my dad a partner, and they'd change the name of the club Herman to Herman's Cabaret. My dad's name was Herman. Now Robin Williams is playing at the club. Tom Dreesen, everybody's playing at the club. In Encino. Yeah. So that's how my father sort of kind of got in the business, but backdoor through me. So now Mitzi, he's working for Mitzi, he's managing the club. Your mom's there part-time. You're yeah. like 18, 19 years old. I was, uh, I think I was 20 by then. This was yeah. 75. And, 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 and the divorce comes. Yeah. Mitzi and Sammy. And uh, the judge said to Sammy, if you let her keep the club, you don't have to pay child support. And he had four kids. Yeah. You know, he should have kept the club, I guess. <laughs> Look, everything's hindsight, yeah, sure. 2020. And that's how he lost the club and she took over. I didn't know that if you were a comedian, you if you, you could make a living if you weren't a star. You yeah. know, I mean, I was a kid. Right. I thought you were on it. Sullivan, The Tonight Show, you right. were a star, you were a millionaire. Right. You know, the only three comics in those days, well, Jackie Gale, four, who you would come to, 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 to the store, you know, new cars, money, yeah. you know, uh, Gabe Kaplan, Kelly Monteith, Moondog and Mule Deer. Medicine show, Gary, Gary Miller, Miller yeah, yeah. Yeah. had a partner, great act. And, uh, you know, Jackie Gale. I never saw these guys on TV. Yeah. Yet they, you know, had, you know, and I would park their cars. And I figured out that the, the car lot sat, you could park 14 cars easily. And I would only park um, Red Fox, Pat McCormick. I would tell people it's celebrities because they would give me five bucks. Yeah. And one night I came home and I had like 80 bucks and my dad saw this. He said, well, you know, I said, you know, so my dad could drive, park an 18-wheel truck parallel park. He would come down after working at, you know, Nate and Al's, and he would stick 60 fucking cars in that lot. 
we were making four five hundred dollars a week <laughs> that was your racket <laughs> and one day uh, it was like july august or something like that mitch sammy saw me taking out all this money he goes where'd you get that i said parking cars my dad here they they fired us and took over the lot <laughs> really yeah oh my we didn't God. make any money just tips yeah but my dad stuck yeah literally 40 the most i remember counting was 44 cars Figure 44. Backed out to sunset, all the way down the driveway. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, you know. But then it gets, it's a real pain in the ass to move somebody. He could, he got them out, in and out, every night. And in those days, Jesus, you know, four or $500 cash. Yeah. You know, people were, you know, salaries were $150 a week in those yeah, days. Yeah, it was a good deal. Yeah. So, you know, anyway. So, all right. So, uh, so that's the crew. So, you know, Leno was there. Are you coming no, in? No, Leno came like 74. And Richard Lewis came 74? 74. Lane Boozler. When did Freddie come? Freddie came, you know, December 73 to do his first Tonight Show. I went, you know. Where'd he come from? New York. He did. He didn't stay. Well, I mean, he was a kid, right? Yeah. And he was, you didn't know him in New York. No. You know, I was, a, I had done the Tonight Show April 73. A couple of months later, I got a phone call from Freddie Prince. Yeah. He goes, hey, I'd love to meet you. You know, I'm getting ready. And he was getting hot. He did the Jack Parr show. I never yeah. did that show. He had a Jack Parr at a show at 1130 at night. Freddie did that. And then he was coming out to do his Tonight Show. I never saw cocaine until the night Freddie Prince came out. December 3rd, 73. I pick him up, and we go to my place, and he had, um, you know, those wool pea coats? Yeah. Well, he had one that went down to his ankles, like a yeah. top coat that he always wore. Right. He loved his coat. It's pouring rain, and you know what wool smells like. Yeah. Now, Freddie, I, I first met him beginning of November, 73. I was in New York, and I say, come out and stay with me. Anyway, this thing is soaking wet. It smells. And Freddie was 6'2". Yeah. 190 pounds. I, you know, this is the heaviest I've ever been. I literally, I'm, I'm 5'4". Yeah. And, you know, 115 pounds I was. And I'm chasing him around his apartment, jumping up to reach his shoulders to get this fucking coat off, to hang it up. And he's we going, you have a, a mirror and a blade, razor blade? I thought he wanted to shave. Yeah. <laughs> I never saw cocaine. Yeah. And he takes out this little wax paper package with a rubber band around it in there is tin foil in there is more wax paper and there's this crushed up what looks like crushed up sugar cubes and he goes no nah, man i said you, you don't look like you have to shave go shave no for this i said what do you need because uh, i said i have a takes my picture of woody allen off the wall yeah and i have an exacto knife he starts chopping it up I said, what are you doing he goes uh, so cocaine i went oh that's cocaine yeah he goes you never done cocaine I said, done it. I'd never even seen it. Anyway, it gives me cocaine. That night, I was polishing the front of the air conditioner. <laughs> yeah, that was, and that's how it starts. Yep. And <laughs> he used to call me Felix Unger Jr. He go, Felix! <laughs> you know, I used to follow him around. You know, if you watch my old, that old Mike Douglas show that's on. I saw that, yeah. yeah I, I used to follow him around with an ashtray. This guy would just, you know, so we'd get a burger. And I said, don't you want a plate? Were you coked up on Mike Douglas? Yeah. <laughs> He, right before I came out. <laughs> yes, I didn't notice your little, little, you know, kind of. Right before I walked out, he was backstage. Yeah, do some, do some. I said, I've never done, I've never been high doing anything. No. And he's shoving up my nose and I'm starting to do this. And you see me walk out, welcome to Philly, yeah. Philadelphia. I mean, I was three seconds, four seconds, and Scheidner and I were talking about it, just lost. I didn't know where I was <laughs> or what the fuck I was talking about. <laughs> That set that I did uh, was my first Tonight Show set. I did that set again on Mike Douglas two years later. Not one laugh. 
the room was spitting. Mike comes over to me and says, some fucking audience, huh? Out of the side of his mouth. Somebody wrote next to my name on the chalkboard yeah. in the office, hydrogen bomb. Oh, God. And I did five more after that. Mike Douglas. Yeah, but not one laugh. That show with Freddie was an evening show, five o'clock. The show I did with not one laugh was a 9.30 in the morning show. That's a tough, that's a tough time. In Finn, Philly. 9.30 in the morning. I've never done a morning show like that. So when he comes out, that's when you guys became you know, best friends? You and Freddie? We met in New York. Yeah. And we were the only guys around the same age. He was a year older than me. Yeah. And he moved in with me and for a few months. Then he moved around the corner when he became a star. You know, 777, 7 Hollywood Boulevard. He got married. And then he, she, uh, Kathy and Freddie had a house up at the top of Nichols Canyon. And then he was coked up and gun crazy. And they were getting divorced. She threw him out. They had a baby. Baby was 10 months old when Freddie died. And that's when he killed himself? Yeah. Were you around that day? Yeah, I was. Yeah, my mother called. Like my mother was in New York visiting family. I get a phone call like four thirty in the morning. She goes, "Did Freddie have an accident?" Because she got was up. It was around seven thirty, eight o'clock. Yeah, seven thirty in the morning. There, she heard all the news. I said, "No, I just spoke to him." Ugh. That night was a Thursday night. I drove up to NBC with Marty Klein to own APA. Yeah, to see Steve Martin host the Tonight Show for yeah. the first time. Guest host. That time, that was the first time that i hadn't seen freddie in about 12 days 10 days because he went to washington in three years I hadn't seen him in about you know 10 12 days because he went to washington dc to do the inauguration of jimmy carter as i pulled up in marty with marty klein freddie was pulling out and we stop at the gate talk he was where are you going what are you doing and he was ranting and raving and I said, well, Steve's hosting tonight, so then we're going to dinner. He goes, all right, call me later, you know, you know, love you, blah, blah, you know, that, you know, he used to call me chief or little boss man. Yeah. And, um, and you know, I remember Marty goes, well, what the hell is his problem? I said, I don't know. I get home at 1130 at night. I call him. I say, hey, you know, how was Washington, D.C.? And he said, you know, Freddie considered himself a, you know, political pundit. You know? Yeah. He read comic books. Yeah. Um. Uh, he he said I got a lot of new hope, you know, for the country. Like, you yeah. know, I thought he said he got a lot of new coke. Yeah, and I said to him, "What's new coke?" I thought we discovered. He goes, "No, I don't do coke anymore." He was doing three grams of cocaine a day those days. Yeah, especially the last six months of his life, and ten quaaludes. Yeah, people didn't know what the psych- cocaine psychosis set in. Yeah, nobody knew what that was in those days. Freddie was at the Beverly Comstock Hotel, which is now the Beverly Hills something. And we would hang out. So every Saturday, he'd come by the house, pick me up. And, you know, I lived in one apartment. My parents lived in the other apartment. And he'd walk through the courtyard, go, Alan's mommy. Can Alan come out and play? Mm-hmm. You know, we'd get in the vet, you know, around 10 in the morning. And we'd cruise Beverly Hills or we'd go to a movie. I guess they just tore it down, the Afco Cinema Center or Wilshire, mm-hmm. or they're redoing it. In the back is the cemetery where Marilyn Monroe is buried. Yeah. Now Farrah's buried there, Farrah Fawcett, yeah. Dean Martin. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And we cruise around all day or go to a movie. The last movie I think I saw with them was Young Frankenstein. And then we go into Beverly Hills and pick up women up and down Rodeo Trot. Mm-hmm. And then we go back to the place and do Coke. And Freddie had one of those big, he was the first one to have a videotape machine. Yeah. Those big ones with the three quarter inch units. Yeah. And he would get movies from the studio, The Godfather and you know, Deep Throat. And we'd watch movies all night and do blow. And before I would leave now, four or five in the morning, anything I touched, napkins, matches, I had to flush down the toilet. Anything I couldn't flush down the toilet, glasses, I had to wipe my fingerprints off of doorknobs. Why? Well, now I know it's cocaine psychosis. Yeah. Those days, I just thought he was fucking with me. 
He would, he would go to my apartment, make me leave the apartment and hide cocaine. And then at three in the morning, he would call me and say, bring the coke and meet me somewhere. And I'll give you a hundred, you know, a hundred dollars in those yeah. days. This was, you know, 77 or 200 bucks. Still a lot of money. Yeah. And I had, this is the first time I'd gone broke. I'd go up to like Mulholland and Laurel Canyon in that area there. It was all woods. 3.30 in the morning, you know, it would be, you know, uh, you know, October, you know, rains would come or foggy and night. And I'd be there in the, you know, and I'd see the Corvette parked all the way into, off to the side. And I'd go to the vet. Freddie's not in the vet. I mean, what the fuck is, you know, what the hell is this? Yeah. And I'd see a flashlight in the woods, a light blinking, yeah. like, like Morse code. And I'd, I'd walk into these woods. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be Freddie in that stupid peacoat yeah. with, with that gun in his one hand that he shot himself with, the Astra Constable, a 380. It was a cop, I'll tell you that in a second, a copy of the Walther PPK James Bond gun and a flashlight. I go, well, why aren't you in the car? He goes, anybody follow you? I go, who, 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 who the f-? You know, and yeah. I, I don't curse on stage or anything. I feel stupid saying this. I go, who the fuck would follow me? For what? Yeah. Are you crazy? He goes, shh. Listen, anybody hear footsteps? I said, I hear the wind and the rain. Yeah. Here's the coke. He goes, get in the car. We walk back to his car, do a little blow for an hour, sit there. I'd be waiting for cops to surround us. Yeah. Do blow for an hour, sit there, bullshit, and he'd give me a couple hundred bucks. And I go, what the fuck was that about? Yeah, cocaine psychosis. Nobody knew what it was. So he lost it. Yeah. I was with Belushi 48 hours before he died. That must have been a mess. We were on, I was managing Tony Danza in those yeah. days. I gave up performing when Freddie died for nine years. I was an agent at APA for a few years. Then had a management company with Steve Binder, Rick Bernstein. Anyway, uh, Paramount had a big rap party for yeah. all their shows, Happy Days, Taxi, yeah. and Police Squad. Yeah. And Belushi was there because he had made a guest cameo appearance for Police Squad anyway. And hanging out, I knew John. He's big then, right? I mean, like just physically, super, physically. Yeah. He, so John, John used to pick me up, turn me upside down, and jump up and down if I didn't have any coke to see what would fall out of my pockets. Freddie at one time made me strip at gunpoint to my underwear because I told him I didn't have any cocaine. Did you have connection? Were you the coke guy at that time? No, everybody was. Yeah. You know, people accuse me of that. No, everybody was. Everybody had a guy. Yeah. Everybody had cocaine. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. You know, well, it was still around when I was there. Yeah, uh, still around today. I, <laughs> I mean, shit, heroin people are heroin addicts today. I go, what the fuck? You know, we never, Freddie never fucked with a needle. People yeah. said he'd do heroin. Well, they can snort it now. You can snort heroin? Oh, yeah. 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 It's a, they smoke it and they snort it. There's a lot of ways to avoid a needle. The quality's pretty high. Ugh. Can you die of an overdose that way? Yes. Wow. Anyway, yeah, Freebasin wasn't around either in those days. That's all Freddie Prince would have needed was Freebasin or crack cocaine. Well, I mean, Pryor was doing it uh, later, right? Uh, yeah, Freddie died 77. Freebasin was by 80, 80, 80, yeah. 80, 80, 80, 81. Boom. Okay, that's ugly what to watch. Anyway. Um, Belushi. Belushi. It's now, I'll never forget, I looked at the clock. It's 2-2-2 two, two, two in the morning. And Dan's and I are just fading. And he's still, you know, we're up there. They, they kept the place open. He was a big star. Tony was a big star. Where was this? On the rocks, yeah. private club on top of the rocks. John would take a shot of vodka, put his finger in it, yeah. and then swirl it around his nose to douche out his nose. Yeah. He took a plastic drinking straw, packed one end with Coke, put that end in his nose, and asked me to blow up the other end. Oh my God. Couldn't get it up his nose anymore. It's the last time I saw John. I found out he had been up on, and I, and I remember when Tony dropped me off at my apartment, I said to Tony, 
what's keeping him awake? Tony and I both looked at each other. I don't know. I, you know, we were, you know, I, uh, you know, I've done blow a lot, you know. I've never been able to stay up like that. Uh, like a week? Well, I mean, even even doing blow still, and drink you and be down. drinking, yeah. you know, you know, line, shot, line, shot, line, shot. You you know, you still didn't have that energy like like it was just continually getting up, right. higher, you know, what's upper and upper and upper, if there's such a word. I go, why? And, and I just said, what, what does that to somebody? How can you do that? Yeah. I didn't know speedballing then. And so that was uh, that was that party. You didn't go to that. You're probably lucky, huh? It's so funny, you know. So he, you know, nobody was there. Everybody says nobody there. Everybody, everybody was, left. Yeah. Well, you know, Janice Joplin died at the Highland Gardens Hotel yeah, with Franklin. Right. It was yeah. named something else. But you know, people say she died in this room. She died in that room. She didn't die in any room. All her friends, she was overdosing. Put her in the hallway. Yeah. Nobody wanted to be. That's what happens every time you hear that someone died alone. Someone was there. People don't want to get direct. They don't want to go down. Yeah. Yeah, they no one. Everyone denies that. Yeah. So, what, how did the uh, the story that Freddie Prince shot himself with your gun start? You know, I, for the love of God, I don't know. But that's the story. Yeah, I know. Um, Freddie in August, come, you know, we're going out. Freddie says, "What kind of gun did James Bond have?" I'm always a big Bond. Were you a gun guy? No, I never. No, I never even you, had a gun. You in didn't the even gun. know people could snort heroin. <laughs> I said to Freddie, "It was a Walther PPK." Yeah. And he says, where can I get one? He said, in this town, any sporting goods store. He goes, where? I said, it was a big five right on Wilshire and San Vicente. They don't sell handguns there anymore. Yeah. But that's where we go. Freddie asked for a Walther PPK. They didn't have one. They had an Astra Constable, which is either Italian or Spanish-made gun that looks exactly like it. So he buys that. It's a 380 bullet, like a 32. And then he buys a Charter Arms 38 snub-nosed chrome-plated revolver. I said, who's that for? He goes, for Kathy. I said, aren't you going to buy the baby one? <laughs> no. And he was pulling that thing out every two minutes for somebody, you know, or, or always had it on him. Oh, really? Yeah. Towards the end? You know, the last few months. And he would sh he shot up one apartment, one one hotel room, 212 or 214, and they moved him to 213, I think, where he shot himself. And I used to tell him, Get a forty-five. Because why? I said because you'll stop shooting up because that bullet will go through the wall. Yeah. And you'll stop. Yeah. Shooting the couch. Yeah. Because you're gonna kill somebody. Because that bullet, that hollow point thirty-two. You know, it's funny. That night, he, Freddie Freddie would call everybody all night long. Paul Williams, Muhammad yeah. Ali, yeah, uh, Richard Pryor, Jimmy Comac, uh, Tony Orlando. Everyone slept with their phone off the hook, but me. He called his business manager, Marvin yeah. Snyder. They used to call Dusty Snyder. Marvin went over there. Now, Marvin never saw this before. Freddie with all this coke with a gun was freaking. Now, I'm not saying I could have done something or, or Tim Thomerson or someone who knew him real well in those days. But I would have said, Freddie, let's go pick up some broads. Let's, you know, go to the coffee shop. You know, three in the morning, you know, ships is always open. Or, or theater, you know, someplace. Or let's, uh, let's go shoot out some streetlights. Let's go up to, you know, we would do that. We would stand under traffic light and see who could hit the red light. Yeah. Like, you know, lunatics with this stupid 30, 380 robot, uh, automatic. Um, and Freddie, you know, did it, used it on himself. And my mother called and I got to the hospital and uh, three, I mean, about four thirty, five in the morning at UCLA. He lasted 33 hours on life support. 
yeah, it was, it, you know, and it wasn't that he was a suicidal guy. He was just caught up in the, in the, you know, the he, always, the he always, always talked about suicide. He oh, always yeah? said, could you see the headlines? Freddie Prince dead. And I used to say, you better hope there's not an earthquake that day. Yeah. And that's the irony to me was in New York, there was a big blizzard. Yeah. So he died on the 29th. You know, he shot himself. <laughs> it got pushed off the page by the. It said snow stunned city in the New York Times. Yeah. The bottom, you know. Yeah. But it's interesting to me that, you know, like you're one of the only guys around really that has, you know, you know, gone through the whole arc of the comedy store. I mean, you know, you were there before she got it. You were there when she got it. You were there for the strike. You were there for the yeah, high I, time. I crossed the picket line. I wasn't performing in those days. I was an agent APA and I crossed the picket line. And that's book by somebody. I'm dying up here. Yeah. Has a lot of inaccuracies in it. And it's Good in book, the, though. A lot of inaccuracies. Like what? You know, uh, Jim McCauley wasn't at the Tonight Show at, at the time he says he was there. Yeah. I was there long before Jay. This thing about Elaine Boozler, he wanted Elaine in the book. Elaine won't do any of these books, and he writes more about her than anybody else. Yeah. So there's these other inaccuracies. I mean, I have to go through the book again. It says, I crossed the picket line with a sneer. You know, Alan Bursky. Yeah. I crossed the picket line. Here, here's the problem I had with them. You with know, the strikers? Yeah. I said, one, there were people striking on that who weren't even comics, for yeah. one. Yeah. Two, I said, you do this, and you're going to make this a professional room. You know, this is, you know, no one's going to be able to come here and break in material. You know, you're going to, you know, this room is to, to sit there with no, notes yeah. and have a notebook in your hand and, mm -hmm. and read material. This is no longer going to be breaking rooms. Yeah. I said, what are you doing this for, 30 bucks? It started with because one night Bob Shaw at Cantor's had no money for a sandwich, and she was making a fortune. I said, these rooms are to make, get us to the Tonight Show. You know, Elaine and Leno and some of these people, I said, You're, you know, you guys are becoming stars, or, you know, you do this. He goes, no, she'll see. I said, she'll never see this any other way, but as a personal attack. And I was right. What I'm starting to see in talking to you is that there's, you know, you actually saw, you know, the, the, the shift and the change and the evolution of modern comedy. Like, you know, you were there, you, you got to touch and feel the old, the old guard. Right. And then you sort of saw the generation that you were involved in with Jay and David and everybody else, you know, take over for the guys that were right. there. You know, the, the interesting thing, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, giants once walked the earth. The only one left alive, literally, is Jerry Lewis. There was Bob Hope and Jack Benny I knew, and Bob Hope I met, and Benny I met, Milton Burrow, I met Groucho. Um, these guys, when they became a star, you know, in the 30s, they yeah. stayed a star the rest of their lives. Yeah. Uh, the only ones I never met were Gleason, Danny Kay, and, and Danny Thomas uh -huh. of, of, that, of that ilk. But these guys... You know, I'm, I'm driving in Vegas on the strip, and there's there's no stars. You know, the, the the still the ones left. You know, you know Bill Cosby or the Smothers Brothers from that generation, or Shelley Berman still didn't. But do you think it's relative to the intimacy of show business at that time, and and to the way that they were treated? Like, you know, the commodification of show business is broken open to a degree that it's very hard to maintain a career like that. Back then, you had a few studios, you had three channels on television. That was that. Well, so people were stars, and the whole world knew. I think. I actually think about this a lot because mm -hmm. when I was an agent, I, I tried to be an agent again at smaller, well-known companies. But if you're not with one, there are 11 agencies today out of 100 that yeah. do all the do 98% of the show business in all the world. My feeling, because what I mean is, and I would get emails and telephone calls, you know, can I be a star? 
course, reality television, people don't do anything. Today, everybody thinks they could be a star because of Snooki. Now, I've never watched any of these shows, but everyone today, because of Kim Kardashian or, you know, what is Kim Kardashian famous for? I don't, nothing. Being famous. Yeah. Everyone, I get that. Yeah. yeah. Everyone today thinks their life is so interesting that they could be a star. These people were stars when you knew, you know, you, you could never be a star. You know, uh, if you wanted to be, a, if you were a kid and wanted to be a comic in 1960, you were so far more, far removed from Milton Berle as I am from from Prince Harry or yeah. William. You know, today, you know, you have to, you know, you're going to be Prince. Today, people think, you know, nobody thinks they could be Prince William, but everybody thinks today they could be Ben Affleck or Beyonce, or or or, or you know. What do you think that is? Why? Because of of the. Because it's everywhere now. The access. You can the access, very easy. Yeah. Everyone sees it. It's in the you, internet. You, you can put your own thing up there and think like this will happen. Yeah. Everyone today thinks, you know. Without, the, without any respect of talent or dues well, or I mean, anything else. I don't know Justin Bieber. I've never seen him. But apparently yeah. he became a star by putting stuff on YouTube. Yeah. You know, before you had to, you know, work shit hold music bars have an A&R guy from a record label and also in. it's very niche oriented too these people theoretically can be stars in their little niche for 10 minutes and that's that yeah but I mean so the, the access to becoming a star yeah. or the access to you know people are saving up four or five hundred dollars to go eat in somebody's restaurant in Las Vegas to see a star sitting there instead of paying seventy five dollars to see a show there are no shows anymore there, I used to go to Vegas you know and now I sound old was Dean Martin and Bob Melvin opening. It was Sammy Davis Jr. and uh, uh, Charlie Callis opening. It was Alan King and Julie Budd. It was the Smothers Brothers and Karen Wyman or Lana Cantrell. Look up Lana Cantrell. And, and you know, this woman was a big star in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, a singer. It's gone. I worked the last end of Miami Beach. You got to Miami Beach. The, uh, I worked the Diplomat Hotel, the Fountain Blue, the Eden Rock, the Americana, the Doval. Uh, they had stars from Engelbert Humperdinck with a comic to Tom Jones with a comic to Alan King with a singer in New York City, town and country, nightclub, out Flatbush, Sammy Davis Jr. would play it. Copacabana, nightclub, Martin Lewis, and even that closed in the early 70s would play it. Latin Quarter, Alan King or, or Stephen Eady would play it. The Elegante in Brooklyn or in the Riviera in Jersey. Within 12 miles, five major nightclubs had the biggest stars in the world and opening acts. Not only that, around those clubs were the Bitter End, the Bon Soir, the Den, the Blue Angel, all with the all up and coming people like, you know, um, Peter, Paul and Mary in those days or whoever, yeah. you know, Neil Diamond, yeah. Richard Pryor. Yeah. All of that is gone. Even before that, as that was ending, I saw Woody Allen every day. In November 72, the last time, next to, once to the last time he ever did stand-up. He did Las Vegas after that, Caesars Palace opening for Harry Belafonte. Woody Allen, every day, Topanga Music Theater, Valley Music Theater, Topanga Boulevard in Ventura. It's a Jehovah's Witness church today. Jim Croce was the opening act. You had San Jose Music Fair. Sonny and Cher were there. That's I went to see Andy Kaufman with Marty Klein. When I was an agent at APA, we signed Andy Kaufman. Uh, how many of those are still open? I think Westbury Music Fair in Long Island is still open. There were a lot of those places. They're all gone. Today, because these guys are making so much money today in television, you know, guys used to want to get a TV series like Newhart or yeah. Rickles. That brought their money up in Vegas. You know, guys like Hackett and Shecky Green, they were always in 
on television because that brought their money up in nightclubs and personal appearances. Today, you're on television. You have a TV series. You're making $300,000 to $1 million an episode. And if you own the show like Tim Allen or Drew Carey did or like, you know, some of these other guys, Seinfeld, Seinfeld's a billionaire, a billionaire from TV. He loves stand-up, so he'll still perform. But these guys used to go to these clubs in Vegas and make, you know, and stay for two weeks at a time. Hackett and, and these people were in Vegas four or five times a year, two weeks at a time. Yeah. That's gone. Now, as a guy who's been a manager, an agent, a comedian, yeah. you know, par- a car parker, uh-huh. did your career pan out the way you wanted? <laughs> I mean, I wanted to be, you know, Billy Crystal's career, Seinfeld's yeah. career. No. But you know what? I'm at peace with it. There are guys today who, and I'm not going to mention them, who are literally suicidal and beside themselves that they're not, because they were headlining. Didn't work out. Yeah. And they had a lot, all the opportunities and TV shows, even films, and it didn't, it didn't happen. Some of them committed suicide. Ray Coombs, Richard Jenny. You know, Richard was a good friend of mine. I loved Richard Jenny. He had other problems, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, but the point is, Richard Jenny was probably the greatest, one of the top five single greatest nightclub comics I'd ever seen. And I've seen everybody and because he didn't have a TV, his own tv series you know i said to richard you know you should be where brad pitt you know brad garrett is you should be like you know the, no no i want my own i said richard what you don't understand when you get your own show like you had your own show or other people have your own show like chris titus and it doesn't make you a star like seinfeld or king of queens or ray romano you're in worse shape than you are trying to get the show yeah that's even yeah, because harder. you had your shot yeah you're harder now they think you, this guy can't handle a show yeah you know i said when you get a show and it doesn't you know getting back boy that's tougher than getting there what's the best moment you ever seen on stage <sighs> i know there's a lot but what would do you remember a comic where you're like a comic or an act i mean i saw neil diamond live a couple times i saw neil diamond at the at the, the Nickelodeon Theater, used to be the Aquarius yeah. Theater. He was taping a TV special, so he was going to do his concert, and they took fifteen minutes or ten minutes of it of, of what he did, put it. So I saw him do two hours in a theater with five hundred people thirty feet away from him. That was like holy! F- yeah. I mean, that was unbelievable. I saw Sinatra, you know, up close. That was, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. Comics. I saw Cosby. Cosby scared me. I, I thought, I wasn't performing then. I thought, I could never do this. Yeah. This, I can't do this. This guy, you know, this was 20 years ago, but he was still working on new material. The the call the callbacks, the end, and it was perfect. It was perfect, the act. You know, Woody Allen. You know, I'd say one of the great things I saw was Dick Sean. I saw a little theater in Beverly Hills. He, the second half of his show was his music, singing, and dancing, but the first half was just his monologue. He was great. I saw the Smothers Brothers, the Troubadour, a bunch of times. They kept making comebacks, but the fascinating thing was the opening act was Tommy Smothers by himself. He was brilliant. I saw Carlin making his comeback when he went to the hippie thing, just when he was doing AMFM, that yeah, album with yeah. the long hair, at the Troubadour, 15 feet away from him. It was brilliant. I've seen Richard Pryor so much that I can't see the genius anymore. Yeah. I saw Steve Martin so much I can't see that. But, you know. Uh, what about when he first saw Kennison? You know, I, I just thought, you know, you know, Sam died owing me $2,000. Sam was a, you know, Sam didn't want friends. He wanted disciples. Yeah. I think Sam was truly, you know, I mean, people are going to hear this and I don't want to get letters. No, that's all right. You know, he, he didn't, I think Sam was an evil guy. I, I know. Sh- I, spent, I spent hours with the guy and he hurt my feelings badly. Sam... 
you know, Sam had that great bit about, you know, you know why this is sand? Yeah, yeah. It's sand. No, you know, the, the starving Africans. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the thing about... Moves so, to where the food is. Yeah, and the thing about screaming. Yeah. Ah! Ah! He had those two great bits. Now, I saw Sam at the height now. He's become a star. This is 87. Yeah, that's when I met him. He's in New York doing the ballroom. You know, he's yeah. got the tour bus with Carla Bove and yeah. all the guys. He walks out on stage and he starts... Ah! Ah! was the punchline yeah not a not not like something to start with i don't think sam could ever fulfill his that that 15 20 minutes of material uh-huh w- what do you think oh i i just thought that you know as a younger comic and, and he I, I think he gets a little bit of short shrift in the big picture because he was sort of an evil guy and you could feel it but i think that you know for for me a guy that you know had to study Lenny Bruce to understand it. It seemed that Sam said it. He, you know, he. If you look at a guy, it's like, well, what can you, what can you do, and what you can't you do on stage? And you look at someone like Sam, and his his sole intention was to push the envelope into the darkness. That he sort of set this weird parameter that, like, he made it clear to me that, like, you can fucking do anything. Well, you know, but you know, Lenny Bruce did that. Carlin did that. No, I before, know that. You know? I know that. I know you know, that. you know, and then there were guys. I watch guys today. We just work with a guy. You know, the MC. You know, fuck this, fuck that. When did fuck become a color? Yeah. Comics actually go on stage. So I'm walking across the fucking street. Yeah. Now I don't mean to sound old or sound like you know, you know, square. If they still use the word square. Or yeah. Prude, but do you go to someone's house and say, "Pass the fucking potatoes at dinner"? <laughs> okay. Even if you talk that way, but yeah. you don't. Yeah. You don't turn to a cop and say, you're giving me a fucking ticket? Yeah. You don't. Yeah. You don't go into Macy's and say, do you have a fucking shirt like this in my size? Yeah. You don't. But for some reason on stage, you do. I'm guilty of it. I know. I was going to, wanted to talk to you about that. I can, you sound like my grandmother. I but I'm saying, but what is I've the, done TV. I can do it without it. But here's my, I shouldn't do it with but it. But here's my point. Yeah. Rob, Bob Schimmel, who I loved, had Love. all this dirty material, but it was not like, so I'm driving the fucking car. Right, no. The fucking, the cocksucking or whatever was part of the material. It was right. in the joke. It wasn't just a dirty joke. Yeah. So I never understood, you know, see, I came up, you wanted to do the night show. My dream was to do the Ed Sullivan show. David Brenner was on the last Ed Sullivan show, February 72. That show was gone by the time I got to be a pro. Yeah. But you couldn't do that on yeah, TV. Sure. And you couldn't do that in a club. The, the only dirty comic when we started, you know, um, Franklin Jai said, pussy a motherfucker on stage. And we were like, oh my God. Uh-huh. The point I'm saying, even today, you want to get on Letterman today or, or any, you know, you know, the name of the game to stardom as a comic is the most amount of exposure in the least amount of time. You know, you did four Tonight Shows, you know, my day, I sound so old. You did four or five Tonight Shows in a year. You were a star. I guess today, if you could bump out Three Letterman's, a Tonight Show, a Craig Ferguson, and a Kimmel. In one year, you'll be a star Man, or Comedy Central. Don't I, matter. Yeah, I, I mean, not the same level. Oh, no, not when I did Tonight Show, twenty-five million viewers. Right. The next day, the Partridge Family called. Yeah, you know, Dean Martin called. You yeah. know, the world opened up. So when I see comics like you said, you're guilty of it. I say, why? I mean, well, yeah, well, I've done Letterman's. I've done it. Yeah, I, I mean, know, I know that. But there are guys, though. You know, you, you, start, you, you don't do it. You're right. It's lazy. You're brighter and more intelligent, and obviously more talented. When you say you do it, why? It's lazy. I'm just I'm asking for my own education. That's no, a good question, and I and I, I think it's lazy, and I think it's uh, it's a way of of cheating, getting control of uh, you know to to put the audience into a, a different zone a little bit. You know, it's a uh, it's a good question. I'll think about it. 
I'm, 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 cause I, you know, you, no, no, you, cause like when you have to do clean, I know when you, when I have to do Letterman set, I got to be on Conan or something like that. You know, and I've done a few Letterman's. You know, you you work it out so it's clean, and it does feel a little weird. I know, you know so, but I'm saying, but you you haven't said. We, I said fuck a couple times. You haven't said to me. You haven't cursed at all. You're not going to go to the market and say how much is is the the fucking. Well, sometimes juice. I do. All right, you get my point. <laughs> I do. Adam. So if you're not, if you don't do that, I'm asking you. You are a comedian of another generation, even though I'm not that much older than you. I still have a generation yeah. before you. What? What? What is it for? Why do it? At the, at the, well, I think that you know part of it is at some point you get into your head that you know you have the freedom to do that, and if your if your heroes are guys that did that, if your heroes are somebody like like Richard Pryor, or your heroes are somebody like Lenny Bruce, or your heroes are somebody but, like... But, but, pardon me for interrupting, but again, Lenny and Richard never said, I'm crossing the fucking street. It was I, always... I don't know. Richard got pretty filthy sometimes. You know, if it wasn't, okay, the motherfucking street. You, you look at Richard, you know, live on Sunset Strip or some of the other ones. It's not like... It's not gratuitous. Yeah. And, I and, get and, it. And, and, and you sometimes, I've seen you a few times, and I, and I like, you know, let me tell you something. I thought you were great. You and um, Bill Burr were, were great. It wasn't like... You know, I watch comedians today, and it was, and it's like, uh, so I told him to shove it up his ass. Yeah. That's the punchline. Yeah. So the fucking, you know, I don't like, use it for punchlines. I no, use but, it for for color, and it's like it's not necessary. I get I your just, point, but I don't. Uh, that's what I don't get. Yeah, yeah, that, it's know, lazy. You know, Woody Allen, ninety minutes. The, some of the great Cosby, the greatest stand-up I have ever seen. Alan King at Carnegie Hall. You go, holy crap! It was relevant yeah. with Reagan and stuff. Never said it once. All right, I get but, it. But I'm not. I'm not trying to say like you know. I'm not trying to sound like no, Bob you Hall. Make, you make your point though. I'm, I just want to know when did the when someone said I'm crossing the fucking street. As I said, is that near Sweetser? Where? What street is that? <laughs> I know. I know. I, I hear what you're saying. And I don't mind. I don't mind. You know, out in dirty. What you're saying is that it's lazy and it's not. It, it's it not just, necessary. It is just so foul mouth punky. You know. You know, get a little sh- class sh- you know bullshit class it up and they no and you don't talk that way or look okay you know you know i got i, I wear uh, i get dressed up when i perform yeah and, and and i and i see comics who on stage with a t-shirt and jeans that they played basketball that afternoon with dirty sneakers and i and, and you know you what you're basically saying alan is this they, they, they don't respect the, the i don't think people respect, you know i the i my feeling is the whole thing with today yeah. no one takes responsibility it's no one's fault anymore yeah and there's no formality in anything there's something you know when you you go back and you look at the old tv shows people yeah. sit in the audience with jack and tyson sure. do you know what's on i gotta say this because they always said there was never any film of them yeah of martin lewis in a nightclub you go to youtube put martin lewis copacabana 45 minutes of them and then in a nightclub it's unbelievable. See, and it was, is everybody eating dinner? Everyone's dressed up, but you know, women are going in with mink stalls. You couldn't walk through Caesar's Palace in the '60s and early '70s without a jacket and tie on. You yeah. couldn't go into the casino. Yeah, flip flops, bags of groceries. People today. I mean, for, I, the whole. I don't. I don't get it. Not just comedy performing. Yeah. I just don't get it. Yeah. Do you know I'm all dressed up? You know how many people kept stopping me in the yeah. casinos I walk through? Where's the men's room? Where can I get this? <laughs> I go. I don't work here. <laughs> One person said, why are you all dressed up? And I said, because I have pride in my appearance. Uh, and I walked away from him. And, he, so, and he, he just stopped there dumbfounded. Uh, I'm sorry it all changed, Alan. What? I'm sorry it all changed. I don't, I mean, you know, if I wasn't a performer. You're making me sad. I, if I wasn't a performer. You know, I yeah. know, but I... And which yeah. brings me to your shaving. Yeah. <laughs> I, gotta, I finally landed on something I like on my face. Let me have it. What's wrong with your face? Nothing wrong. Thank you for being here. Thank you. There you go. He's like a demonic zelig. He's been everywhere. 
That was interesting, wasn't it, people? Wasn't it? Uh, go to WTFPod.com. Get that app. Get Do what you got to do, man. Uh, what do we got? Wayne Kramer on uh, on Thursday. Wayne Kramer from the MC5. That is a fucking story. Holy goddamn shit. Boomer lives. Boomer lives.